Hey, dear podcast listeners, my name is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor of Williamsburg Baptist Church here in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. And I uh, was just as delighted to listen to this sermon myself as I am to share it with you all. We had a special guest preacher yesterday. Her name is Reverend Jackie Green, and she's a dear friend of this congregation. Jackie went on the Holy Land trip with us in May with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, and we had the best time connecting. I know Jackie from, uh, we were members at Tabernacle Baptist Church in Richmond for several years together, and I also know her through um, the Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond. But uh, it's been wonderful to have her connect with us here in Williamsburg now and to come guest preach for me when I was I was um, away at a wedding this past weekend and so was, left the church and congregation and worship in more than able hands. It was such a blessing for Jackie to join us in our pulpit to offer words of wisdom and encouragement and challenge. Jackie's sermon is based on 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, verses 3 through 15 and 28, or you could just read the whole chapter. It's the story where where Solomon, uh, it, God asks Solomon what his heart desires, and Solomon asks for wisdom of all things. And um, Reverend Green's sermon is entitled Wisdom from the Mountaintop. Hope it's helpful for you uh, as you wonder and wrestle with what it means to be people of wisdom and people of faith in this world. I should say that I had a hard time figuring out how to splice the beginning of this sermon. And so Lana Cole read scripture and has a uh, short little commentary on our trip to the Holy Land uh, before Jackie launches into her sermon. So I hope that will make sense. We really are glad you're listening. If you want to find out more about us, you can head over to WilliamsburgBaptist.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we try to keep those pretty up to date with things that are going on in the life of the church. Again, we really are glad you're listening. I hope this sermon is helpful to you. God bless. I also was on the trip to Israel, and besides the shopping question, I was like, are we going to get to eat olives three times a day and falafel every day? Yum! Better than the swimming pool. Sorry, Fran. <laughs> now you know why I love being here. It is truly an honor um, to be back with you again, Williamsburg Baptist Church. I do feel like this has become part of my home. I want to thank Art in his absence for giving me this opportunity and this invitation. I don't take it lightly when I stand before, you know, God's people to deliver God's word. Um, so again, thank you, Art. Art and I actually met in, when I was in seminary. Art was my professor. So um, we've been friends and colleagues for a little while. You have to bear with me today. I had my COVID shot on Friday or Thursday, and one of my side effects is it messes up my mouth. So I'm really dry. So pardon me. I also want to thank Fran for your lovely welcome. Um, she emailed me and said that she was going to say that I was her soul sister and that was going to be it. And I said, you can absolutely do that because we had such a grand time in Israel. It was a, just a joy to be with Lana and Lynn and Art and probably folks I'm not naming, but it was a, a trip of um, that I always will remember. 
And finally, I do want to say um, my husband Ray is here. I want to thank him for chauffeuring me here um, to Williamsburg this morning and always for praying for me and supporting me in um, ministry and life. I believe that everyone in this place has heard all or part of the iconic speech given by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He told the crowd gathered for the 1968 March on Washington about a dream for equality that he had, not only for black people, but for all humans. However, one of my favorite speeches may not be so well known. He delivered it five years later on April 3rd, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. Its title was, I Have Been to the Mountaintop. And it was given during the Memphis sanitation workers strike. It was reported that Dr. King had come back to Memphis um, in order to restore a nonviolence approach to the civil rights movement in Memphis after there had been so much violence um, in the city during that time. I like this speech for a couple reasons. First, Dr. King's preaching style truly captivates me. I love the sound of his rhythm and cadence and the way he has his oratorical eloquence. In fact, in this speech, his words seem to carry me along with him on a theological and spiritual journey. If you haven't heard it, I really encourage you to listen to it because in his introduction, he describes a personal conversation that he has with God. And I suppose it was during a time of meditation. And King said God had asked him a question. God said, Martin, if you could stand at the beginning of time with the possibility of seeing the entire view of the whole human history up to now, that point, what age would you like to live in? And in his vivid response, King invites me to ride along with him on his mental journey or flight, as he calls it, as he considered events in biblical history, Christian history, and American history. He begins with the Israelites in Egypt as they cross the Red Sea through the wilderness onto the Promised Land. And then he goes on to say that he would stop in Greece during the Roman Empire, in the Renaissance, and on to the Formation. And finally, he gets to the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. It's here at the Emancipation Proclamation that he thinks about how amazing it would be to settle down in this important time for black Americans. And yet, he wisely knows that God had called him to another point in time. He tells God, if God would allow him to live just a few years into the second half of the 20th century, that he would be happy. King's courage and confidence in his calling is the second reason why I love this speech. 
Because as we all know, the mid 20th century was a dangerous place for a black man and even more for Martin Luther King Jr. So much so that later in the speech, he tells his congregation that the plane that he used to fly to Memphis had to be guarded overnight because of the death threats that he was getting. He wanted to ensure that his safety and the other passengers was there. But by the end of that speech, Dr. King, in spite of the death threats, said he had risen above fear because he had been to the mountaintop. He was comparing himself to Moses, the leader of another oppressed people, and like Moses, whom God had allowed to see the promised land but not go into it, Martin seemed to prophetically know that he wouldn't live to witness the equality that he marched for. And yet that night, amazingly, he said that he would be happy. In less than 24 hours, King was dead. I wanted to highlight a few things from Solomon's life and leadership that may answer a few questions. Sorry. As I reflected on the text today, King's speech floated into my mind, and I wondered about the wisdom that he had received on that metaphorical mountaintop. I wondered why God endowed some people with this kind of discernment and insight. And I wonder what it takes to receive it. In our text today, we are introduced to King Solomon, who also encountered God in a dream and woke up with wisdom and discernment. And so I wanted to highlight a few things from Solomon's life and leadership that may answer some of my questions. So I believe Art spoke about Bathsheba and David last week. So you may know that Solomon was their second son. The scriptures tell us that Solomon was conceived after their first son had died. This was the unnamed baby who was conceived as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba, or I should say against Bathsheba. The story of Solomon's secession to the throne is different whether you read it from 1 Kings or 1 Chronicles. In 1 Kings, his secession begins with the notification that David was old and dying. And as David's death approached, his son Adonijah began preparing to take over. Adonijah was David's oldest living son and the natural successor to the throne. But Bathsheba, at the advice of the prophet Nathan, persuaded David to officially name Solomon as his successor. And this caused a little family uproar. In my research, I read from Will Gaffney's book, Womanist Midrash, and she writes that David had fathered 19 children with at least six different women. She writes that uh, some of the children's mothers were unidentified, which is why there may even be more. And with that family dynamic, it's no wonder that First King includes the rival between Solomon and Adonijah over the throne. However, in First Chronicles, Solomon's transition to the throne 
is much more civil. In this account, David claims that Solomon had been chosen by God, and it gives no exact indication of a rival between Adonijah or any of his other brothers. Throughout the Bible, Solomon's life is associated with wisdom. He is even considered being one of the wisest people. Many of the sayings in the book of Proverbs are contributed to Solomon. But when we meet Solomon in this passage, he is a young adult who was overwhelmed by his role and his responsibilities as the king. Scholars agree that Solomon was probably about 20-ish when he assumed the throne. And as I read about his age, I was instantly reminded of the late Queen Elizabeth II who died last month. She was also crowned about at age 26. And in comparison to what we're told about Solomon's path to the throne, I read that Elizabeth was prepared and trained for her role as queen immediately after her father unexpectedly became king of England. So now, for those of us who are older, uh, think about your own years as a young adult, if you can remember back that far. What was your life like? I know mine was a little interesting. Young adulthood is a time of discovery, right? Emerging science says that the human brain doesn't fully develop or mature until about 25, which explains some things that my two young 20-year-olds say to me sometimes. <laughs> that prefrontal cortex is the decision-making part of our brain, and it is responsible for a child's ability to plan, to think about the consequences of our actions, and to solve problems. And I also have to say that it's a privilege when a young person is able to ease into um, the, the young adult years with the guidance of parents or trusted mentors. Because that's not always the case for people who are living in poverty, who endure traumatic experience, um, who are bullied, um, or have social dynamics in general or have the kind of family drama that we imagined or that I imagined went on in David's household. 19 children, six mothers, drama. So I attribute, so I, the first thing I attribute, I'm sorry, the, so I first attribute to Solomon that his life of wisdom came through worship. In verse 3, Solomon is worshiping God on Mount Gibeon. He is showing his love for God by sacrificing burnt offerings on the altar. In contemporary times, we have associated worship with what we do in church on Sunday mornings, right? During the pandemic, we have had to alter or pivot around the way we worship um, or the way we've become accustomed to a worshiping in a church building. And I'm not sure about here at Williamsburg, but when I returned to Tabernacle in the summer, I noticed a few faithful members were absent from the pews. 
beginning next week, Sunday will be a regular workday for me again. Technology and sociology, um, societal norms have made how we worship different in the 21st century. However, the text says that Solomon loved God. And isn't that the true essence of worship? Loving God with our heart, our mind, and our strength. What does your worship consist of these days? Is it a sweet savor in God's nostril? What, if anything, about your worship has changed during the pandemic? Are you sensing a holy nudge from God that something might be missing? Secondly, wisdom is often associated with trusting God, fear of God, and repentance. First Kings 3 and 1 tells us that Solomon had at least one sin to repent before God. He had made an alliance with Egypt by marrying the Pharaoh's daughter. And actually, Solomon's relationship with foreign women would continue to tear him down. But this alignment wasn't only a huge lack in his judgment, it was a sin against what God had commanded in the law. Solomon had aligned God's people with their former oppressor, Egypt. And if you read about this account in its entirety, you'll find that there are many instances in Solomon's life where he became more like a pharaoh and less like God's anointed leader. However, I'm inclined to believe that Solomon's spirit was troubled about his failure, and even perhaps he was not living up to King David's standards. Maybe this is why he dreamed about having a conversation with God. Psychologist Carl Jung theorized that dreams are the bridge for the unconscious and the conscious mind. So a couple of months ago, I began noticing that my dreams had these recurring themes, Fran. Several nights in a row, I dreamed about women, children, and babies. So I became curious about what these symbols might be telling me. And I did a little research into Jung's theory. And so what I read seemed to suggest that something about my subconscious was trying to connect with my inner child or something about birthing or creating. I don't know. <laughs> but the creative process kind of intrigued me. So guess what I did? I enrolled into an art therapy class. I'm learning how to paint mandalas. I figured I could explore my inner child and unwind from the intense work that I do at the hospital at the same time. I have not painted since the fourth grade, so I will let you know how it turns out. Connect with me on social media and you might actually see my finished product. We don't like to talk about repentance in church anymore. Yes, God's love and grace are always present. Guess what? So is sin. Solomon's dream seems to point to his failures. Maybe he questioned himself about the political alliance he had entered into with Egypt. But it seems like he was less worried about that, and he was more um, worried about his inexperience as a leader. And he desired to do better. 
And that's the definition of repentance, right? Wanting to change. Every now and then, we have to remember how much we need God's power in order to change. I'm not going to stand here and suggest what kind of sins there might be here in this room. But know this, every day we are given the opportunity to die to our false self and to live into our true self. I like the way Ruth Haley Barton says this about the true self. She is a Christian leadership expert, and she says that our truest self is the place where God's spirit witnesses to our spirit and enables us to live like people who are created by God and redeemed by God. Can I say that again? Our truest self is a place where God's spirit witnesses to our spirit and enables us to live like people who are created by God and redeemed by Christ. Finally, from Solomon's life, I see that wisdom is necessary if we want to administer justice appropriately. The first display of Solomon's wisdom was that familiar story about the two women arguing over a baby. And in this case, Solomon proved himself as a wise adjudicator, for he was able to determine who the biological mother was of that baby. In his ruling, he ordered the guard to cut the baby in half. Solomon discerned that the real mother would want to save her baby's life, even if it meant she would lose him to the other woman. In another passage, it says that Solomon gave, that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding that was beyond measure. It was like the sands of the seashore, and it surpassed the wisdom of all the people in the east and the wisdom in Egypt. When I read this verse, the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Kentaji Brown Jackson came to my mind. Last February, President Biden nominated Jackson to become the 116th Associate of the Supreme Court. She was also the first black woman to ever receive this nomination. Biden stated that what made Justice Jackson an outstanding candidate for the Supreme Court was that she was exceptionally well qualified, she was experienced, and she displayed an even-handed approach in the administration of justice. In fact, Justice Jackson is more qualified and has more adjudication experience than any of the former or current justices on the bench. During her confirmation hearings, Justice Jackson humbly shared that her faith in God had allowed her to reach that point in her professional career. As Christ followers, our social action must be rooted in love, in faith, and in wisdom. It doesn't matter whether you're fighting for environmental changes, world hunger, mental illness, women's productive rights, unjust wars, or the oppression of God's people. We need Christ-like wisdom to lead with wisdom in these endeavors. And I believe it's important to pray for wisdom as we select the people who will lead us, our ministry leaders, our business leaders, and especially our political leaders. 
We need leaders who are qualified and who have a sense of humility. In closing, Dr. King, I think he was a good leader. I believe that. He wasn't a perfect person. Like all of us, he made mistakes. He did things that displeased God and caused others to question his integrity at times. However, I do believe that his heart was grounded and he, he was, I'm sorry, his heart was grounded in worship and also in repentance. And that's why I believe that Martin Luther King could say that night in Memphis that he wasn't concerned of what would happen to his 39-year-old life because he was sure that his leadership in the civil rights movement was guided by his faith in God. And in the end, his work glorified God. So today, if you are lacking in wisdom, I want to encourage you to return to the mountaintop like Martin and like Solomon and let God speak to you anew. Amen.